So that's awesome, church. We have a new pastor. That's great. It's awesome to see how God continues to uh, build his church here at Redemption. Incredibly thankful for this church. I'm thankful for what he's doing. I'm thankful that you're here this morning, that we get to worship God through singing, through opening his word, through responding. This time of year is really a time where we are usually the most relationally consumed, meaning that we're thinking about the people in our lives. We're thinking about the people that we're closest to as we get close to Christmas and we have Thanksgiving and all of those things. We're thinking about the people that maybe we've drifted apart from, that we haven't seen for a few years, that we used to be really close with, but we aren't anymore. Sometimes we think about the people that were lost, that, that we've lost, that are no longer with us. Or we think about the people that even used to be in our life, but there's something that happened in that relationship and it strained that relationship, and so now there's not the connection that there used to be. Or we think about the people that even we just pass on the street and we wonder, do they have a place to spend Christmas? What are they doing this Year. We are so relationally consumed this time of year, and that's, that's a really good thing. It's not a bad thing. But I want you to take a minute, and I want you to think about this this morning as we start off. I want you to think about, just for a minute, the best time in your life. The best time in your life, and as you think about that, who's there? Who's with you? Who was there during this time, whether that was a wedding or a graduation or just uh, getting a promotion or, or, or the birth of a child? Who was there? And now I want you to think about, though, the hardest time in your life, the time when you faced the most difficulty, the time when you had the most doubts, the time you struggled to see how you could even go on. And I want you to think about who was there, who sat with you, who listened to you, who told you the truth, even though it may have been hard to hear, who stood by your side. See, today in the second week of Advent, as we focus on this idea of love, it's, it's, it's much more than an idea. But if you walked around Green Lake today, right outside our doors, and you ask people for their definition of love, I guarantee you would get a hundred different answers. Some would focus on romance. Some would focus maybe on just connection. You would get a ton of different answers. Maybe it'd be similar to what some of these children said. This is great. When uh, these young children were asked between the ages of four to seven, what is love? Big question, right? Here's, here's what a few said. Here's what Billy said. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and boys put on shaving cologne and they go and smell each other. <laughs> All right, Carl. Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and then he wears it every day. So those are from little kids, but... Here's the thing, as we talk about love, this is something that's so important for us to understand. And why is it so important? Why shouldn't we just assume that we know everything there is to know about love and we know the kind of love we received and we, we know how to give love the right way? Why is it that we shouldn't just assume that? Why is it that we should slow down and take a minute and actually reflect and listen and think about this thing called love? And here's why. Because if we don't truly understand how we have been loved and how we've received love, and all the ramifications of that, it's going to be impossible for us to really show love in the way that God calls us to. And the good news is that God hasn't left us to figure us out, this out on our own. He's given us the perfect definition of love and the perfect example. And it came so unexpectedly. And it came in such a manner that you would say, that's the way that God was going to enter into the world this way? But yet it was with great purpose and great intentionality. And it gives us the perfect definition 
of exactly what love is so that we can respond to that love to God and to others. So that's what we're going to look at for a minute this morning. And if you were with us last week, we looked at hope and really this reality that for 400 years there was silence, that God had promised there would be a coming Messiah, one who would save his people. But then there's this huge span of time. And so when's God, when's God going to do this? When's he going to send the Messiah? When's this going to happen? Is he going to follow through? Is he going to be good on his promise? And then we come to this place today that after 400 years of silence, the proclamation comes. The one who we've been waiting for is coming, but not without challenges, not without difficulty, and not in the way that I'm sure anyone expected. We're going to be picking up in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 18. But this is an account that we've probably heard a lot. And if you're new with us today and you haven't been in church and you haven't heard this, that's awesome. You're going to hear it for the first time. It's the account of Jesus coming into the world. But the situations really surrounding that and what we see, which is really interesting circumstances, which tells us a lot, tells us a lot about God's love. So we're going to pick up in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So, just a little bit of background is that Mary and Joseph were probably between like 14 and 17 years old. So they're young. It's not like they had been planning for this. It's not like they had stored up a bunch of money and they were like in their 20s or 30s and they decided, hey, it's time to get married now. They were young. They were really young, and they weren't expecting this at all. These were teenage kids in a small, really equivalent to a one-stoplight town in Nazareth, population of maybe a few hundred. And here's what it says. They hadn't been together. They were trying to do right by God. They had stayed clean. They were abstinent. And then the angel comes to Mary, and here's what we see in Luke 1. Here's what the angel says to Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth and to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and shall call his name Jesus." He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? It's a good question. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son in this sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, about three months and then returned to her home. All right, so this is not like an everyday occurrence. So this is obviously a very interesting situation that's going on here. And it says that Mary's pregnant now. She stays with Elizabeth for three months, and then she returns home. And so she's starting to probably show. 
She comes home after three months. Now, it says that the baby is from the Holy Spirit, and we know this to be true because we're reading this. But guess who did not know this? Joseph. So your fiancé goes away, and she takes three months. She comes back, and now she's pregnant. Can you imagine what's going on in Joseph's mind here? Can you imagine what he's thinking? He had to be thinking that Mary's lying, that you're crazy. This doesn't happen. This isn't how it works. And there's only one explanation, really, that Joseph could have come up with, that Mary had been unfaithful. Because he hadn't been with Mary. I was at the gym on Thursday night, and I was, I'm not going to say I was running on the treadmill. I was walking. But it was on a steep incline. Um, that's, how I, that's how I roll. And at my gym, there are about 20 TVs all around the treadmills, and it caught me out of the corner of my right eye. There's sports going on, there's CNN, there's MSNBC, and then out of the corner of my eye, I see it. There is a Jerry Springer marathon that's happening on one of the TVs. And every time I I look at this passage, and this is why I need your prayer this week, I think about this. Like when you have the DNA Father Reveals, this would have been the craziest one. They come out with an envelope, and there is, there's, there's, there's no male DNA here. We don't, we don't know. This would have been insane. And I think it's important for us to understand that, not just pass it on and be like, oh, of course, the Holy Spirit put a baby in Mary. We wouldn't think that that was normal at this time. We wouldn't think that that was normal today. We have to understand how crazy a situation that this was that was going on, especially for Joseph and, and Mary, and especially right now for Joseph, because he had not been visited yet. And so look at Joseph's response here in verse 19. It says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So when it says husband here, they're not officially married, but they had made a contractual agreement. They were committed to be married. And you imagine the emotions here of what Joseph may have been going through. I mean, think about it for yourself. What would your emotions be when someone hurts you? What's your response when a spouse lies, when children are disrespectful, when a family member oversteps their bounds, when friends betray you? Is it compassion or is it anger or frustration? Joseph didn't expect this. I'm sure he had an idea of marriage, and it was to grow up in this small town of Nazareth to probably raise a family, but he didn't expect this to happen. It's not what he had bargained for. And here's why it's important that it says that Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly because he could have divorced her publicly. And here's the deal. It's not like today. The consequence of unfaithfulness at this point, one of the consequences would have been death by stoning for what Mary had done. But Joseph, even though he didn't believe it at this point, at least not that we see, and he didn't understand it, he still had compassion. He still had love for Mary. And so he, he tried to think of the best thing he could, and that was to divorce her quietly. He didn't want to put her to shame, because love doesn't put others to shame. It protects. It seeks to protect, and that's what Joseph did with Mary. And so as he's wrestling with this, and that's his best idea, Joseph finally gets an unexpected visitor here. In verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There's a phrase that jumps out here. It should jump out to all of us. Do not fear. Fear. Such a powerful thing in our day-to-day lives. And here's what 1 John 4.18 says. You might know the verse. It says that perfect love 
casts out fear. Now, if that's true, so is the opposite, that fear can prevent us from love, specifically from loving. Think about the way that that happens. Fear can easily bring about doubt in our minds that God really loves us. And it can cause us to believe things that aren't true, that maybe God is distant or maybe God doesn't really care about me or maybe God doesn't really understand what I'm going through. This fear can creep in that leads us to those thoughts. Fear can also definitely lead us to not engage with others because we're fearful. We're fearful of being known. We're fearful that people won't respond in the way that we hope they would. We're fearful that if we give love and offer love and show love that it might not be reciprocated. And so fear is one of these barriers that oftentimes can come between our faith in God's love, our belief in God's love, trust in God's love, but also can come between just you and I, fear. And so as the angel comes, he says, Joseph, do not fear. He knew that Joseph was fearful. He knew that Joseph was seeking to resolve this. Here's what the angel continues to say. It says, she will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Here's the deal. Naming is a huge deal in this culture. The one who names is the one who has authority and also decides that person's purpose. And so it wouldn't have been fitting that Joseph and Mary would have just picked out a name. That instead of Jesus, it would have been, you know, Billy or Bob or, I'm thinking of all B's, let me think, Randy, something like that, right? But what this shows us is that, no, 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 Joseph, you're not going to name this child. God already has named him. He comes with authority, by authority. God is sending him. And his name represents his purpose. And here's what it is. And it's an amazing purpose. He will save his people from their sins. And it says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet way back when, past 400 years. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, to fulfill that God keeps his promises, that God doesn't just toss his promises out the door, that God doesn't just say, well, I promised you this, but then you rejected me, and then you walked away from me, and then you turned your back on me, and so I'm going to take back my promise. That's not what God does. And if you have a relationship with God this morning, and for whatever reason you're doubting his love for you, you feel like maybe you're not good enough, maybe you've blown it too much, maybe you've done too much, maybe you've walked away from him, maybe you've completely turned your back and you're questioning everything that you thought you know to be, knew to be true. Here's the truth. He's still not pulling away his promise from you. It's still just as true today as it was yesterday, as it was the day before, and his love is just as rich. It hasn't been watered down. It's not going anywhere because God keeps his promises. The greatest testament is right here in this passage. Here's what's amazing too. So this, this verse here, God will be with us. He'll, his name will be Emmanuel. You'll call his name Jesus. So he'll save the people. He will save his people from their sins. Here's what's awesome. It means that we're not alone, that we're not hopeless, that we're no longer orphans because God has come to be with us, showing us the relational reality of love. Love is always personal. It's always relational. It's close and it's never distant. And not only that, not as he, only is he coming to be with us, which is amazing, but he's coming to save us. 
And so the only proper response to this good news is what, church? It's to rejoice. Thank goodness. I'm no longer going to go to hell. I'm no longer going to be separated from God. Even if the worst thing comes at me here, even if I lose my life here, I've still got Jesus. That's good news. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why Christmas isn't a bum out. It's not like, oh man, let's go cut down a tree and just sit here and eat cold soup. That's not why we do this. We do it because we're rejoicing, because it's Jesus is here. God is with us. Emmanuel, let's rejoice. I want you to think about this, because this is the only way that we can, and, and we often pass this by, is that there are two sides to this. That this verse leads us to rejoicing, that God would be with us, and that he would save the people from their sins. But to truly understand love, we can't ignore the other reality that's taking place here, which makes love far more powerful far more true, that our rejoicing as humans at the coming of Jesus is heaven's weeping. Because the Father knew what Jesus was coming to do, what he was sending his Son to do, and he would have taken no pleasure in that. Because he knew that the only way to save his people from his sins would be a worthy sacrifice for their sins. The Father was giving up what was most precious to him. He was sacrificing what was most precious to him so that we could be saved from our sin. That's why it's so important to not only look at the birth of Christ at Christmas, but to remember what the birth signifies, that an innocent king would leave his throne to be born on a lowly earth into a lowly family to suffer a lowly death, and not for his own sin, but for ours. So what does this show us about love? Here's what it shows us. It shows us that love at its core, true, genuine, unadulterated love is selfless and sacrificial. This is what God did in sending Jesus. The kind of love that would be willing to be born to a, and I want you to think about this, a poor family, two teenagers, with no stature, not to kings, not to presidents, not to rulers. That would have been awesome, right? No, no, no. To Mary and Joseph, two teenagers in the podunk town of Nazareth. That's who God chose. And it wasn't by accident. It wasn't like God was just looking out and he said, eh, let's, just give him, let's just give Jesus to the teenagers. It was so intentional. And here's why it's so important. That he would be born to this lowly family with no stature to be cared for by teenage moms and dads. In coming lowly, God shows us that real love, it doesn't show prejudice. It doesn't show bias toward a class, a race, or even our past. Jesus came in the lowliest way so that none of us could say we are too low for God's love. And he came in a lowly way so that when we are tempted to not love one another, we remember how low Jesus came so no one that you encounter is too lowly to be loved. Not the person out in front of the grocery store, not the person out uh, sleeping at Green Lake right now, not your greatest enemy, not the family member you haven't talked to for years, not the person who hurt you, not the person who maybe even abused you, and I don't want to say that lightly, that no one is too lowly to be loved, and no one's too high to be loved. God absolutely knew what he was doing in sending Jesus to this family. So Jesus lowered himself to be with us. God with us. Three words that offer us great comfort that we're not alone. That's one of the things we want to know more than anything in our life, that we're just not alone. Our greatest fear is to be alone. We're not alone. We don't need to figure things out on our own. 
Instead, we're loved. Selflessly, sacrificially, and God's love toward us is also steadfast. It's not going anywhere. See, this is where we completely go on different paths with society's definition of love. Society would say love is something that I'm down with as long as I can get something out of it or get what I want or as long as it comes through for me or as long as it's convenient or as long as it works with my schedule or it works with my desires and my needs. And if it doesn't, what happens? We throw it away. We discard it. We dump it out. But God's love mm, says there's no throwaways. It's steadfast. It's covenantal. It's continuing. It doesn't walk away when things get hard. It doesn't walk away when things are inconvenient. It doesn't walk away when there's hurt and when, when you're even sinned against. It's steadfast. It's steadfast and it's unmoving. So God coming to be with us shows this. And so the angel talks to Joseph, and Joseph, it says, when he awoke from his sleep, in verse 24, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. I love this. Jesus uses Joseph, who we don't really hear about much anymore throughout the Bible. We hear a lot about Mary, but not about Joseph. Is a great example here, but really an example that points to God. That Joseph didn't take the easy way out. He remained by Mary's side. He trusted God. He trusted what God had told him. And imagine the impact for a minute on Mary and Joseph for the rest of their life. I just jotted down a few. I went to high school in a really small town. Here's the reality of a small town. Everybody knows everything within five minutes. For real, it's annoying. Everybody knew everything. Who was dating, who wasn't dating, what had happened, who was in jail, all these crazy things, right? Everyone knew everything. And so imagine living now in this small town for the rest of your life and no one believes you. No one believes you. They just assume, all right, you're trying to cover something up. This doesn't make a lot of sense at all. This wouldn't have been easy. It had massive ramifications. Think about Mary in her town, what she would have been thought of as a whore, as a liar, probably rejected by most, a pariah at the center of whispers and gossip because people didn't believe her. And eventually, Mary would also endure the reality of having to see her son taken 33 years later in the cruelest way possible on the cross. But through it all, God is with her. He never leaves her side. And Joseph, he has the role of essentially a stepfather here. He doesn't name Jesus. He knows that he didn't play a part in this. This couldn't have been easy. This would have been challenging. And for those who didn't believe Mary and Joseph, uh, imagine what people would have thought of Joseph, that either he was a liar who got Mary pregnant and tried to cover it up, or he was a complete fool for staying with her. He sacrificed his reputation to selflessly protect the wife that he loved and to protect the son that would go on to protect him from the eternal consequences of sin. Here's what I want you to know, that every time you choose to love someone, you're going to sacrifice. If you're going to truly love somebody, there's always a sacrifice. It can come in many different forms, but it's always going to be there. Whether that's your time, whether it's your energy, whether it's your emotions, this is true for every loving relationship. From your friends, to your spouse, to your children, to your family, to your neighbors, to those who you simply encounter on the street, there's always a level of sacrifice. This is what Mary did with her future, what Joseph did with his wife, and ultimately, and most importantly, this is what God did with us. Verse 25 wraps up by saying, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And Jesus, this completely innocent baby sent from God that was laid in a wooden manger because there was no room in an inn 
so lowly would eventually be laid on a wooden cross out of love for you. For you. Yes, you personally, you individually, you. Not just they, you who are sitting in here right now. This is how much God loves you. And this is how he showed it. That he would come to a broken earth to be with a broken people to put them back together. And he would be steadfast and selfless and sacrificial to the point of death. And so whenever you doubt, I just want to tell you this because it's good news at Christmas and it's good news out of God's word for us as the church this morning. If you have a relationship with Jesus, whenever you doubt the love of God, whenever you're tempted to go another way, remember the selfless sacrifice of Jesus. Here's the beauty of God's love. It never stops. It never stops forgiving. It never stops pursuing. It never stops being patient. It never stops showing compassion. And it never walks away. It's a covenant, and it's steadfast. Nothing can break it. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you will never be more loved by God because he already loves you to the max. And here's the beauty. You'll never be less loved by God, no matter what tomorrow holds. So do you understand how much God loves you? And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, he invites you into one. His love is just not for a few or it's just not for a significant group of people. His love is offered to you because he came to die for the world. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, he wants to have a relationship with you. Just as he came to be with you and to save you from your sin, if you give him your sin, he gives you new life and he gives you a friendship. Someone who's never walking away. Someone who's always going to be close. Someone who you can always count on. So maybe, maybe today that's for you, and we'd celebrate that as a church. I've been married to Laura now for nine and a half years, and we've had really good times, and we've had challenging times. And here's the thing. I'm not the easiest person necessarily to love. I have flaws. Um, I, can, I can be opinionated, believe it or not. Um, I can want my way. I can be stubborn. At times, I'm not as compassionate as I wish I was. But here's the thing. I absolutely know that Laura loves me without a doubt. And I know that because, not because of the times that have just been really good and we've had a lot of fun and, and great times together, but here's why I know it. Because she's seen me at my worst, and she's still here with me, showing me compassion and grace and love and walking alongside me. You see, the truest sign of love isn't being there just when it's easy. It's being there and remaining there when it's hard, when it's messy, when it's costly. This is the kind of love that God showed us and has now called us to show others. So loving people, it's a part of our mission statement. Enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. This is what we mean when we say loving people. That as a church, we would endure when things get hard. That we would stand beside people and each other when it's inconvenient. That we would forgive even though it's not easy. That we would embrace the broken. That we would bear the burdens of one another when they come rolling in. That we don't walk away. That we don't keep record of wrongs and gossip and talk behind people's back. Instead, we speak the truth in love because we want the best for our brothers and sisters. And we want the best for those who will become our brothers and sisters. That God might save.
we stay faithful, and we stay steadfast. And so over the next few weeks, as you get together with people, as you get together with family and friends, as you get together with coworkers and neighbors, as you interact and as you walk the streets and you see those who may be less fortunate, I would encourage us as a church, as we've been shown this kind of love from God, to take advantage of our opportunities to love one another and to do it in a selfless, sacrificial, and steadfast way. Even when it's not easy, even when it's not convenient, and even if it costs us greatly, because God so loved you that he gave his only son. What cost him greatly, and his only son sacrificed his life, and God has been steadfast in his pursuit of us. And so may we respond in love to him and to one another.